You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to me as well. Thank you. Today, uh, we are talking about church leadership, church governance, org charts, organizational structure. Anyone else super excited about that today? Any other weirdos like me out there? I actually, I do. I I like looking at this kind of stuff. And uh, last week was uh, kind of a heavier week, a more technical week. We looked at gender roles within the church. And this week, we're looking at qualifications for uh, eldership and qualifications for being a minister in the church. So uh, just fair warning, buckle up. It's going to be another long one. We're going to talk about Greek words. We're going to get into it uh, today. Some of you might be aware of a conversation happening within uh, the Christian world, specifically in our nation. Last week, a piece of news, the Southern Baptist Convention upheld a decision to expel uh, two churches over the issue of women pastors. And in light of our conversation last week where we talked about ministry, we talked about gender, we talked about those kind of things, I would uh, highly, by the way, recommend if you missed last week... Go back and check it out. This week's teaching flows right out of the same uh, line of thought. And so if you missed last week, uh, you're kind of missing the foundation, the theological foundation for this week. But this is significant. I'm not Southern, and we're not a Baptist church, but this is significant because the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest, largest Protestant denomination in the United States of America. So that's significant. It's also significant because one of those churches is Saddleback Church, founded by best-selling author Rick Warren. It's one of the OG megachurches, very influential church. And, uh, and so this, this conversation of, you know, can a woman hold the office of pastor is a significant conversation, and I'll tell you my thoughts on it by the end of the sermon today. <laughs> so you better pay attention, Okay. Uh, brief recap for where we were last week, okay? In 1 Timothy 2.12, it's this really uh, complex passage. Here's a chart from the Bible Project. Really, there are, th- there are three options I showed you last week and three different approaches to this prohibition that Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And out of those three options, just for clarity as far as where we land at Hill City Church is we land in option two. Option two, women shouldn't lead, but with education they can teach. And when it says women shouldn't lead, that's not this universal women shouldn't be leaders or have influence or power or anything like that, but there are specific roles in the church, and for us, that role is the office of an elder slash overseer, which we're going to get into today. Now, the reasoning I gave last week, and I don't want this week to be a repeat of last week's sermon, but the primary reason that we would say there is room for women to teach is not only because there seems to be a major doctrinal issue happening in Ephesus, it's very apparent if you read Paul's letters to Timothy that the main concern is false doctrine, and there are a specific uh, group of women who seem to be 
playing into that. But also, there are numerous examples in the New Testament where women are, in fact, instructing people, instructing even men at times in matters of theology. Uh, I gave a number of those last week, but one significant one that I, I did not mention, you can read this and study later as a case study, is the church in Corinth. Paul gives a very similar prohibition for women to be silent in the gathering in 1 Corinthians 14. And we must ask, was that a universal prohibition that women should never talk? Like you enter through the doors and women can't talk once you're in church anymore. There are literally some denominations who believe that to this day, right? And you just have to read a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, the very same church context that Paul gives some parameters for how women should pray and prophesy, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. You can read that later. In the public worship gathering. And so we must just look at that and wrestle with, okay, a few chapters later, he says women should be silent. But here he's actually saying that they should prophesy, and he gives a way for them to prophesy. And we, we must just ask the question, is there that big of a difference with a woman in the public worship gathering sharing a prophetic word from God versus a woman who shares a teaching from the word of God. Does that make sense? That there is some kind of instructive nature in sharing a prophetic word. And the reality is for us at Hill City Church, I know this is nuanced and technical, but we really do view there as a difference of holding an office a church office, holding a church position, versus exercising a spiritual gift as a way of serving the church and building up the body of Christ. So that, hopefully that helps explain a little bit more on where we stand. Uh, so the reality is at Hill City Church, we only have qualified male elders. But this really just begs the question, what is an elder anyways? For some of you, you might be wondering that. We're going to get deep into that today. Before we talk about eldership, I just want to talk a little bit about Jesus' design for church leadership, because there's this kind of caricature of a church like ours who would say, okay, to have any kind of limitation on who can serve in the office of elder, doesn't that, isn't that just guarding all of the power in a small group of men who are going to rule the church with an iron fist? And I just have to kind of break that perception right from the very beginning is that is not leadership in the way of Christ. Does that make sense? So when we talk about who can be the leaders, we're not talking about who can be the top of the food chain, who can hold all the power, who can rule over the rest of the body of Christ. This is what we're talking about, Matthew 20, okay? Just so we can all get on the same page. Well, what are we talking about when we're talking about leadership in the church? Matthew 20, 25 through 26. But Jesus called them to him, called his disciples to him, and he said that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles... We, we might say rulers in this world, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And there's a lot to talk about leadership. There's leadership gurus, leadership podcasts, leadership styles. And one of the styles of leadership is a style of leadership called servant leadership, right? Maybe a CEO might employ that as a tactic for how to win over right, people to their uh, form of leadership. Let me just be really clear about this. Church leadership is servant leadership. It's not one option among many when it comes to the kind of leaders that God wants leading his church. It's the only option. 
For, for someone to be a godly leader or a Christian leader, they must be a servant leader. So that's the parameters. The calling of church leadership is not to be the king of the hill or the top of the food chain. It's actually a calling to be the greatest servant. The ones who are laying down their lives, pouring out themselves, serving and sacrificing for the sake of the body of Christ. And that is something that we believe that God has specifically called men to do. And here on Father's Day, we can just appreciate the nature of godly men who lead their families in this way. And that's a high calling that God gives, but it's a sacrificial calling. It's not a calling to hold power. It's actually a calling to serve in the way of Jesus. So that's all groundwork. Let's jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be breaking up the text really just in one place today, covering a lot of ground as we go. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So here's what's significant for us to recognize about an elder. An elder is what differentiates a church from a small group Bible study. Does that make sense? You might ask the question, right? If I'm getting together with coffee with a few other believers, isn't that a church? Well, in one sense, the church is the people, and so some people have kind of tried to argue that anytime believers are together, that is a church gathering. But really, when you read the New Testament, for a church to be established, one of the telltale signs time after time is... An elder is present. You see this in Paul's own ministry strategy when he would go on his missionary journeys. That was one of the things that he would do before he would feel comfortable leaving a church in a city is after appointing elders in that place. Here's a summary statement for the first missionary journey in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So imagine the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're going from place to place, they share the gospel, they baptize believers, they're gathering together weekly. Paul doesn't leave until he can pass off leadership. And who does he pass off the leadership of that church to? To an elder to an overseer. A little bit about our terms. There are two terms used interchangeably in the New Testament for this office. The first one is the Greek word presbyteros. It's where the Presbyterians get their name. Presbyteros can be translated as elder, as an older person, as in just someone who's advanced in years is the, is the nice way to say that. Or a Jewish leader. And it's the more Jewish of these two terms. Think about um, Moses, who got advice from his father-in-law, Jethro, when the burden of leadership was too great for him. Jethro told him, you must go and appoint elders, appoint older men to lead the nation of Israel. Uh, The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 
elders, which would gather together and make decisions. And this word is the by far most commonly used word in reference to this office. It's used 66 times in the New Testament. The second word, though, and this is actually the word used in our passage for today, 1 Timothy 3, is episkopos. This is where the Episcopalians get their name, okay? Does that make sense? And it's the same thing, but it, it, it emphasizes a different aspect of this position. It's normally translated overseer. Sometimes it might be translated bishop. And really, it has this idea of a manager, It's the more Greek of these two terms, and this term is only used five times throughout the New Testament. Uh, In Ephesus, they already had elders by the time that Paul wrote 1 Timothy. You see these elders being uh, called together in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to him. He called the presbyteros to him. But then just a number of verses later in Acts 20, 28, it says this, Paul's words to the elders is pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers, it's that word episkopos there. Do you see those used interchangeably? Who's he talking to? The same group of people. It's elder slash overseer. To care for the church of God, to shepherd the church of God is the right way to say that, which he obtained to you with his own blood. You can also read these two terms used interchangeably in Paul's words to Titus. If you want to read a parallel passage to today's passage in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Interestingly, uh, when Paul writes to Titus, he's actually telling Titus to appoint elders. So here in Ephesus, there are already elders, and here's the standards, the qualifications given to measure those elders upon so that if there are any who have fallen into error, Timothy, what's he have to do with those guys? He's got to remove them from office. He's got to replace them. But then Titus, completely different cultural context on the Isle of Crete, right? Completely different. You can read the qualifications for appointing elders in that situation. It is almost identical. There are minor variations between the list of qualifications given to Timothy in Ephesus and given to Titus in Crete, which informs us that this list of qualifications is likely intended to be a lasting, timeless, universal list of qualifications for godly leaders of the church. So here's what we're gonna do. There's 15 of them, okay? I'm gonna go through them very, very quickly. Uh, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna say much about each one, but here's what I'm gonna do. We have elders at our church, and I've chosen to give the uh, definition of each one of these terms as an I statement, as in, we as elders of the church should be able to say, I check this box, does that make sense? And uh, don't just measure me or our elders, by the way. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of someone like, who's supposed to be qualified for this like, high level of position in the church and actually look at yourself. Because the reality is many of these are, yes, they're qualifications for the leaders of the church. Many of these are also just great qualities for all believers, right? To exemplify. So, so yes, look at the eldership, look at our, look at our uh, pastors, look at our staff, but also look at yourself. Okay, the first one. Above reproach. An elder should be able to say, I've got nothing to hide. 
You can look at my social media profile. You can look at my my phone. You can look at my text messages, right? There's nothing corrupt. Above reproach, by the way, is kind of an umbrella characteristic that really, if you check, check this one, I mean, you'll check most of the other ones, if that makes sense. Next characteristic is a husband of one wife. An elder should be able to say, I'm a totally faithful husband. So the characteristic that you're looking for is faithfulness, not necessarily um, that someone has to be a married man, although all of our elders are married men with children. Uh, That is one of the questions of this one. If somebody is an elder, they're a faithful husband, but they're a widower, their wife passes away, does that disqualify them from eldership? Some people would say it does. I I tend to read it a little bit like, what's the characteristic you're looking for? The characteristic is faithfulness. If somebody is single, they're celibate and single. And yet, it still assumes that a male will be holding this position, the phraseology of a husband of one wife, because the opposite of that phrase is used later in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to refer to a wife of one husband. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. It's the same phrase, but flipped around. So Paul understands there are two different phrases, and the characteristic you're measuring is not if a widow is still married to one husband. It's when she was married, was she faithful? Was she a faithful spouse to her husband? The next one is sober-minded. That means that an elder should say, I exercise good judgment in life and leadership. This means that there's nothing that clouds your vision. It's, there's nothing that, that, you know, there's no substance, there's no addiction, there's no a distraction that's clouding your ability to make good decisions in your life and your leadership. Self-controlled, it's a great one. It's a fruit of the spirit. Uh, an elder be self-controlled. I demonstrate discipline in my life. You can look at my life. I'm not a person who, who is, you know, who's lazy or, or undisciplined, but there's, there's self-control, there's discipline there. Respectable. I earn respect through my life, not my position. So for someone to hold a position of authority, it in some ways does demand respect. Like, okay, respect that person. They're in a position. But an elder is going to say, I'm going to live, not just like, I'm not just going to play the leader card. I'm a leader. You have to listen to me. I'm going to actually try to earn respect. I'm going to live a risk. And there's there's two different kinds of leaders, right? There's a kind of leader who's like, look at my job description. You got to respect me. And there's another kind of leader who's like, I am in this position, but I'm going to earn your respect by being worthy of uh, being a respectable kind of person. Hospitable. I use my personal property as a tool for ministry. In the first century, by the way, hospitality was vitally important, really just to, uh, because you didn't have uh, Airbnb, you didn't have a lot of hotels, there's no room in the inn, right? You see those situations in the first century, and guests would often show up unannounced. And so this first century version of hospitality was like, if somebody needs a place to stay, who's the first person you're going to call? You're going to go and see if the elders will put them up, right? So this is very significant. And really, this doesn't necessarily have to do with, like, you have a huge house or you have a lot of money or you're, you're, you're great at hosting parties. It's really just more of a posture of everything I own is God's anyways. My, my car is God's. My house is God's. My bank account is God's. So if God gives me an opportunity to use that stuff for his kingdom, 
I'm going to do that, right? That's what hospitality means. Able to teach. Able to teach means I can instruct others and defend true doctrine. So every elder needs to understand theology, whether or not every elder has been trained and delivers a a 35-minute sermon, if that makes sense. And in some churches, they have every single elder on the preaching rotation, but even in Ephesus, I don't think we necessarily see that expectation for every elder. Look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So this idea that there are, like all elders need to understand theology because guess what? Nothing that I share from stage when we're talking about women's roles and church leadership, nothing that I share today is a surprise to our eldership. Because guess who I've been talking and praying with and discerning this stuff with for years now? Our elders. This is not just me on a computer typing things up, right? This is why you don't have to just email me if you have questions. (laughs) You can also sit down with any one of our elders because these are all, like, genuinely, like, the, the sharing the load and the burden of talking about doctrine, talking about theology is important. Now, even in 1 Timothy 5.17, though, there are some elders who seem to be financially compensated for spending more time laboring and preaching and teaching. So we have that. It, that would be Jake, Associate Pastor Jake, and myself as the lead pastor. We're both elders. Actually, in a first century context, you probably would not have called me Pastor Josh. You would say, Josh, an elder at the church in Boise. That would be likely my, my job title, would be, would be Presbyteros, right there. All right, moving on. Not given to drunkenness. This one should be obvious, but it's there anyways. Uh, it just means that an elder should be able to say, I'm free from addiction. You know, when it comes to substance, uh, you know, addictive substances, that sort of thing, either they have a, um, you know, they're not going to partake, or if they do, they do so in moderation, and they're not given over to drunkenness. Not violent. Once again, here's like, these are some of the obvious ones. I appropriately deal with difficult emotions. The reality is, when you're in any kind of high-level leadership, but especially church leadership, you enter into conflict quite frequently. And if you're not able to manage the difficult emotions that come with the territory, right? If someone just like, they can't handle it, they're punching holes in walls, or certainly if they hit someone, that's like, you're disqualified at that point in time. Does that make sense? So not violent, you, you can't have a violent leader. Uh, gentleness, not violent, but gentle. Again, fruit is spirit. It's good for everyone to be gentle. Uh, the idea, though, is, is gentleness is power under control, and elders should be able to say, I don't always have to get my way. If, if you're a kind of leader who always has to get your way, then that's not a godly leader. That's not gentleness. You should, it's not just like, you shouldn't be you're like, I never get my way. Like, you should be able to like, voice your opinion, share your thoughts. But the idea of, like, I can get outvoted and we can actually still move forward and I can be, you know, still be a voice for unity. Not quarrelsome. That means I will approach conflict as a peacemaker. So again, I deal, I've, I deal with a lot of conflicts as a pastor and I shouldn't be the one starting those conflicts and I also shouldn't enter into a conflict and pour gasoline on the fire in those conflicts. What should I be doing to the fires? I should be putting out fires, right? But only you, Smokey the Bear says this, only you can prevent forest fires. So 
The, the reality is, though, not being quarrelsome is, is a very important quality for someone who's, one of, one, of, one of an elder's specific jobs is actually to be called in when believers can't handle conflict with one another. What, read Matthew 18. What's one of the first things that, first steps that you should do? Bring an elder in there so they can actually help you navigate and manage those conflicts. Not a lover of money. Uh, an elder should be able to say, my goal is to grow God's kingdom, not my bank account. Now, four out of our six elders don't get paid, so it's easy for them to say, right? That it's easy to like not be in it for the money when you're not employed by the church. But the reality is, no church leader should be really, their heart shouldn't be given to money, materialism, possessions, consumerism anyways, because that is going to influence, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the goal, what's the mission of Hill City Church? Is it to build giant bank accounts and have, you know, like, no, obviously not. The mission is to seek and save the lost. So elders need to be able to recognize how are we mobilizing the funds been entrusted to the church for the sake of expanding God's kingdom. And so we're gonna make wise financial decisions, but we're gonna make financial decisions that make it the biggest kingdom impact. Not a recent convert. We, we have these five stages of discipleship, all the way from pre-faith to mature faith. Who are we that we would consider for an elder? I would say only someone in that fifth stage of mature faith, right? Even if someone's a great guy, a godly man, if they've only been a believer for six months, we would say, you need to give it, give it a few more years, right? Because there's, there's just this idea of deep roots, deep uh, roots when it comes to your faith. A good reputation, is I represent the church in the community. This is why it is important to just have a group of leaders that doesn't post crazy stuff on social media, quite frankly, or, or isn't getting in trouble in the news. You're not showing up at the headlines, right? Because the leaders of the church, we've seen this time and time and time and time again. When, when, when people that we thought were godly leaders, something comes out and there's a moral failure, what happens to that church? right? It explodes. That, that's, this is why as the leader goes, so goes the church. Now, here's one. Th- that's 15. We made it through all 15. That's amazing. We have another list of qualifications we're going to go through here in a second, but uh, we're not going to go through line by line through the list for deacons. But here's one thing I just want to highlight before we move on, is that most of these qualifications, not all of them, but most of them, by and large, have to do with character not competency. Do you see that? Have to do with character, not competency. Let me quote uh, the CEO, uh, former CEO of Porsche Motor Company, Peter Schutz, when he says, higher character trains skill. Have you heard that before? It's a really good, it's a really good um, motto for leadership in general. Because the reality is, if you hire someone who has all the right skills, but there's like decaying character inside, that's going to be a disaster for the organization, right? That's going to be a disaster for the group. But if you hire, and we don't like hire elders necessarily, but if you appoint an elder who meets these godly qualifications, they, they, they demonstrate godliness in their lives, even if you have to give them a little bit of training on how to give a communion meditation, or even if you have to give someone a little bit of training in some of the other skills required, or how to enter, you know, how to go and do a hospital visit, right? How to go and, and be someone at the bed, be, be next to someone at the bedside when they're passing away. You might have to do some training with that to a new elder who gets appointed to that role. If, as long as they have the godly character needed, right? 
they can learn those skills. Does that make sense? And so here's what we're looking for. We're looking for godly, disciple-making male leaders when we are appointing elders. Let's continue through uh, Paul's qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You can see there's some crossover. This is why we're not going to go through the list. There's a lot of similarities between these two uh, lists. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So they must understand at least some theology, and they must understand the gospel. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We get asked sometime why we don't have deacons. I've been asked that question. Why don't you have deacons at Hill City Church? And I just look at the person who asked me that question, and I say, we do. Let me explain. Here's the, word, here's the word for deacon. It's the Greek word diakonos. When we translate it as deacon, I want to be clear about this, it's not actually a translation, it's what's called a transliteration. Does that make sense? It's just an English spelling of the original Greek word. In fact, the term baptism is not a translation of the word baptizo. It's a transliteration of that word. Now, we don't transliterate presbyters or episcopers, right? Right? We, we translate those, elders, overseers. And I actually prefer, instead of the word deacon, I prefer one of the other definitions, which is minister or servant. Um, one, of the, one of the things we see is we see this tendency, and this makes sense in leadership, that the larger a ministry or an organization or a church grows, the more leadership structure you need. Does that make sense? So if you have a really small church, a house church, or a church of 20 or 30 people, you don't need a complicated org chart. You don't need all of this structure. But the larger that a church grows, let's say, I don't know, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that first sermon, you baptize 3,000 people. Our church is not 3,000 people yet. And we have... You know, like, we have an org chart. It's like, wait, where does everyone fit in? It's kind of hard to figure that out sometimes. 3,000 people day one and counting and growing, right? So the larger that a church uh, becomes, the more structure that you need. And I'm going to make a case today that elders is the first, like, how how do you know whether it's just like a group of believers who are having a Bible study versus a church? There's an elder, that's what differentiates that, but the larger that that church grows, now you have an added layer of leadership, the diakonos, the deacons, the ministers, or the servants. You see this in the book of Acts, where the church begins in Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, you have the 12 apostles, this male leadership group who is leading the church, and I think that they are prototypical for the eldership of uh, the rest of the New Testament church. But then you have this issue that there's, there's this feeding program and the church has always you know, been known for taking care of you know, people who are hungry and, and doing that kind of work. But there's one group of widows who's not getting fed and another group who is. And this keeps kind of like the apostles keep getting emails about this. 
If they had email, they would be like, ah, and they're like, Mark is unread, I'll get to it later, but they'd never get to it. And they're like, Peter, did you get to it? He's like, no, I'm prepping the sermon. He's like, John, he's like, no way, right? And so they're like, who's gonna, do, who's gonna deal with this? And this is their solution in Acts chapter six, two and four, two through four. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, that word serve is diakoneo, which is, the verb form of the noun diakonos. Does that make sense? To serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So if you have the 12 apostles who are prototypes for the eldership of of the rest of the New Testament church, then you have these seven who are prototypes for what would later become known as the church office. I'm not saying that these seven were called like Deacon Stephen or Deacon Philip or anything. I don't think it's, it's quite like at the point there, but these are prototypes for that position in the church. They're servants, they're ministers, they're getting things done on a day-to-day basis. They're making sure people get fed. Now, uh, some people have tried to draw a really strong distinction between the elders who do the spiritual stuff in ministry and the deacons who do the hands-on stuff in ministry, right? You you see a little bit of a flavor of that where the apostles are like, we're gonna pray, we're gonna preach. Does that mean that the apostles are not doing any practical things? No, it doesn't mean that. And then you see these seven, who they are actually taking care of this feeding program. Once they sort out that feeding program, what else do you think they're doing? Well, one of the things we see them doing is we see Stephen being the first martyr for preaching the gospel publicly. We also see Philip traveling around, being an evangelist. So are deacons doing more than just like task-oriented things in ministry? Yes, we see practical examples of that. And I think even in the qualification, although the qualification able to teach does not show up for a deacon, understanding the mysteries of the faith does. And so I think even in the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, you see a precedent that these are not just task-oriented people. These are ministers, okay? Does that make sense? So, let me give you, this is great, charts. Anyone want to see some charts? Okay, so here's what I would say is a small church, okay? Paul goes to Philippi, and he baptizes Lydia, and Lydia's whole whole household comes to Christ. Paul does not leave Philippi until he is appointed an elder or slash overseer to help, man, to help lead the church in that region. Does that make sense? That's like a smaller church. Now the next layer would be a growing church. So now you have not just elders slash overseers, which is synonymous, you have ministers slash deacons. Again, interchangeable. These are the people who are like, hey, we need some help running the church programs. So we need some help caring for people, shepherding people in those ways. And then you have all believers. By the beginning of the second century, so I've read, I've, I've scanned through all the church, the early church documents, by the way, on this. By the year 105 AD, we have a man named Ignatius of Antioch, who is known as the Bishop of Antioch. And essentially, by the early second century, you have have that term episkopos being delineated from presbyteros, where you have the bishop of Antioch, Ignatius, is like the overseer of all the elders of the specific local churches in that region, and then all of those elders also have deacons. So you see the hierarchy? 
And then today, if you look at, you know, as that grew and grew, the Catholic Church has the Pope and cardinals and archbishops and bishops. And does that make sense? So, so you see like this, that's a, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge hierarchy, huge structure. Now here's what I want to show you. This is the org chart of Hill City Church, okay? Looks a little different <laughs> than the first century. And obviously, we just have to own the fact that there are certain jobs, there are certain positions at Hill City Church in, in the year 2023 AD that are different than positions that you would have found in the first century. We just have to own that, that you would not have a production director in the first century. Does that make sense? Like some of the, and we just like, so we want to be informed by the New Testament church, but while we have very clear qualifications, we do not have anything close to a job description for the early church offices. And even for those early church offices, there is even some variance on what each person would have done. This person, they're both called elders, but this person seems to do a lot more of the teaching, and this person uh, doesn't seem to do nearly as much. So that's our Hill City Church org chart. Like I said, I'm the lead pastor. I'm also an elder. Jake, our associate pastor, is also an elder. We submit to the eldership for things like accountability. I don't set my own salary. The, like, does that make sense? I don't perform my own year-end annual review, any of that sort of stuff. And yet, when I show up to an elder meeting, I'm an elder. I'm not, I don't work for the four lay elders. I don't have four bosses, right? I'm, I'm equally a part of that elder team. Now, let me show you what our org chart for Hill City Church would look like in this New Testament model, okay? So we have, and I think a Venn diagram is the best thing that represents this. You have at Hill City Church the elder slash overseer group, and that has four laity, four you know, volunteer or non-staff elders, as well as the lead pastor and the associate pastor. And then you have a group of what I would call is, here's our deacons. Because here's something, by the way, deacons are like doing ministry. We, I'll just say this, this is a fairly declarative statement, we will never have a deacon board. We'll never have a deacon board. As in a committee who just talks about decisions. The deacons are the ones who are doing the work of ministry. And I would say all of our staff are ministers. They're doing the work of ministry, as well as myself, as well as Jake, as well as we have, and then we have volunteers or people serving in the church. We believe that every follower of Jesus should be serving, should be doing work to build up the body of Christ. But even in our volunteer group, we have certain people, certain high-level volunteers who oversee entire ministries, like men's ministry and women's ministry. And so I would even put that category of team leads in, in, in the sphere of diakonos, in the sphere of deacons or ministers. And we do, by the way, hold people, even volunteer people, uh, to a higher level of qualifications if somebody's going to serve, you know, overseeing an entire ministry. So that would be, it's not perfect, but I'm just here to say, like, that's what it, that's what it is. That's how we operate here. So we're not gonna add a deacon board and add like these other layers of structure. When I would say like functionally, we have ministers. We have people who are doing the work of ministry and uh, we hold them accountable to a higher level of qualifications. And you might look at that chart and you might say, well, wait a minute. Remember the first question I said I was gonna answer? 
Can women be pastors? Wait a minute, okay. There are women in the minister slash deacon category at Hill City Church. And I would say, you are correct about that. And uh, I'm gonna have to disagree with the ESV for just a moment. And I say that very humbly. It's the, it's the, it's the version of uh, the Bible that I you know, often read from and preach from. But there are, in my mind, three really strong English translations of uh, the Bible. And the other two disagree with the ESV on how to translate 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. So you notice there's these qualifications for deacons. I know this is very technical. For some of you, you're like, do I really need to know this? There will not be a pop quiz later, but for those of you, this is very, I think this is very significant. Let me read to you 1 Timothy 3, 11 from both the NIV and also the NASB, which are both very respectable English translations. In the same way, the women... Notice how the ESV translates it, wives, leading you to basically naturally read it as wives of deacons. Uh, It says in NIV, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And then again, the NASB says it like this, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So here's what I think is the best explanation for this. And I'm not alone in this. This is not a, fr- this is not a fringe uh, interpretation of this. That in Paul's list of qualifications for ministers or for servants or deacons, he has 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10 and verse 13 applies to all ministers. So here's qualifications that are you know, not specific to any gender. Then in verse 11, he gives a word specifically to the female ministers. And then in verse 12, he gives a word to the male ministers, speaking of husband of one wife. Not only do I think there is good, like it's good Greek. The word is gune. I don't think, I think it doesn't make a ton of sense, by the way, to measure a deacon's spouse if you're not gonna measure, there's nothing to be said about measuring an elder spouse. Does that make sense? And if you look at the org chart there, like, okay, so you're not going to measure the elder spouse and how much they gossip and how, you know, but you're going to measure the, like, I think it, make, it legitimately makes the most sense to interpret it that way. And in the New Testament, we see a crystal clear example of a female deacon. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diakonos, not even a diakonia, not even a, a feminine version of that noun, but a deacon of the church of Sancria. And so what does this mean? It means that, again, this is really kind of supports the case that I was talking about last week, where we, you know, we do hold to a complementarian uh, view of gender in the household and the household of God, and yet I think it's totally unfair to say that Paul does not want women in ministry. Paul here is giving, I would say, qualifications for women ministers. He believes in women in ministry. He calls women co-laborers in the work of the gospel, right? The apostle Paul goes and he starts the church in Philippi at Lydia's house. You see, you just look at his ministry. Look at his ministry and you see Paul time and time again. Uh, believing, empowering women in ministry. So let's get back to the question where we started. What about women pastors? One more Greek word. The Greek word for pastor is the word poimain. And it's the word that we translate pastor or shepherd or leader. 
And it's used 18 times in the New Testament. And it is used most frequently, literally translated as shepherd. Jesus in John 10 says, I am the good poimen, right? He says there's also bad poimens, there's bad shepherds. And so this word, and this is really how we translate it here at Hill City Church, seems to be a more general term in reference to the kind of leader that God is looking for, not necessarily a specific church office. Does that make sense? The only time, so out of the 18 times that this word has used in the New Testament, the only, it also is used for like literal shepherds, by the way. Like the shepherds were watching their fields by night. That's like the point main. They were doing that. It's used only one time in reference to something that could be a church office. And that's in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And, uh, and this is the only time. And we don't know. And I just have to be honest about this. We don't know. Some people try to make the case that the shepherds and teachers there at the end of that sentence in Ephesians 4.11, that's the elders. And some people very strongly and conclusively say that's the way that it is. And I'm just here to say, I don't think that there's, I've preached through Ephesians 4 before. I've studied Ephesians 4. Again, I've read the early church documents. Everything I can tell You cannot find evidence that people in the first century or even the early church were called Pastor Paul, Pastor Timothy. It just does not seem at all like a normal term to use for an office in the church. We went over the terms that were normally used. It's presbyteros, episkopos, diakonos. That's the terms, that's the titles. What's most likely is that this term pastor was popularized in the Protestant Reformation as a reaction against the Catholic Church using the title priest. And so you have reformers like John Calvin who are like, well, the Catholics use priests. We're not gonna call them priests. What's a good biblical word? And it is in the Bible in reference to some, some kind of church office one time, but we don't know what office that is. Does that make sense? It's a church leader. I would say a church leader. You could call it a church leader who's set apart for the work of ministry, caring for people like a shepherd leads sheep in the likeness of Christ. So you have reformers like John Calvin who's like, we're gonna start calling our church leaders pastors. Now today, we have all different kinds of pastors, right? We, here at Hill City Church, we have three pastors, a lead pastor, an associate pastor, and a family pastor. Two out of our three pastors, just to show you the chart, Two out of our three pastors are elders, and one is not. So the way that we use that term and define that term pastor is someone who's set apart for full-time ministry, they're ordained for full-time ministry, and they're leading people in a pastoral sense. So it may, let me just say, it makes sense. When I read this article about the Southern Baptist Convention, and in the Southern Baptist Convention, they are, they're, they've made it an interpretive decision to define Poimen, presbyteros, and episkopos as synonymous. And you will read that. You'll say, these are three synonymous terms. Therefore, because we believe that you can only have male elders, we won't have female uh, pastors. And they've made that decision. And they've, again, I'm not Southern. We're not a Baptist church, okay? And it is not, it is not currently, nor has it ever been the way that we have used the title pastor, 
We think that some pastors, like the lead pastor, will be on the elder team. And so just to look at that chart and to say, okay, at Hill City Church, for absolute clarity, we will not have a female elder, which may include also the lead pastor position, right? It also includes that position. But we don't have female pastors right now, but would we, would we hire a female for the position of a family pastor? Absolutely. Likely we would. Or a worship pastor. Like if there was a female who we hired at Hill City Church, we would fully want to like lay hands, pray over them, appoint them, set them apart for ministry. And just by the nature of their gender, we would not, because the term itself in the New Testament seems a little bit more open than these more rigid terms like presbyteros and episkopos, we don't see that there is an issue with the title female pastor. None of this, by the way, is in response to this decision with Saddleback or SBC, it literally, I've been planning this sermon series for months, and it just so happens that there's this, this kind of Christian cultural conversation happening at the same time. Does that answer your question? Yes. Would we have a woman pastor? Probably in the future. We, we, yeah, we, we don't currently, but in the future, if there is a woman who is qualified for a position in, in ministry, we would lay hands, we would set them apart for the sake of ministry. Okay. All of that to say, thank you for listening through the whole sermon today. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> last point, last point. I don't, want you, I don't want to get lost the practical. This is very technical. I hope, I really hope, in the future, when someone asks me these questions, I can say, do you want to listen to a 50-minute sermon where I really explain this? And I can just, instead of me having to have an hour conversation time, like, Here's this sermon on this. Here's this sermon on this. And this is, just, again, you can disagree with us on this, but this, our beliefs will inform our behavior. This will impact the way that we do things at Hill City Church. Here's the point. Here's the whole point of the passage. You don't have to be a minister to do ministry. I hope you don't get lost in all the qualifications, all the roles, and all this. Sort of, you don't have to. Let's not forget the very next verse. What is the point, by the way, of church leadership in Ephesians 4.11? Why did Jesus give us certain leaders in the church? It says this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What for? To equip the saints. Who's the saints? Everyone say, I am. I am. It's you to equip all believers for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's why if, if we have a, a female in our church who's gifted for teaching, she doesn't have to hold an office as a lead pastor for me as a lead pastor to invite her up to share from God's word. Because what is my job biblically? What is my job? To equip the saints for ministry. To help fan into flame spiritual gifts that we see in all believers, men and women in our church. And I just want to encourage you and, and challenge you with this. At Hill City Church, we have a core value. Everybody has a job to do. Don't wait until you have a position, until you're handed a position of authority or power. Don't wait even until someone says you to begin serving the body of Christ and using your gifts for the building up of God's kingdom. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.